folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me this morning on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I've got three really wonderful guests that I'm excited to share with you and to really sit back and listen to them share their stories and their insights with us. First up today, I'm going to get a return visit from a guy who was so fantastic a few weeks ago that I couldn't wait to have him back on the show, and that's 2013 Senior Open Champion Mark Wiebe. I'll get uh, Mark's thoughts on last week's Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, which just also happened to be where he won his Senior Open Championship. We'll talk a little bit about this year's Senior Open Championship going on right now this weekend. Mark is now focused on teaching the game, so we'll talk about his teaching philosophies and the, you know, the mental side of the game, get a tip or two from him as well. Mark will be uh, along with me here in just a few minutes. Following Mark, I'll be joined by Jay Blasey, and Jay is an up-and-coming young uh, golf course architect. He spent several years working for uh, the Robert, Chent, uh, Robert Trent Jones Jr. Uh, firm, so uh, he was a part of the team that designed Chambers Bay, so we'll talk about that. Plus, he's now working on a project to save Sharps Park out in uh, in San Francisco. Sharp Park is a, has a golf course on it that was designed by Alistair McKenzie, which you know uh, from uh, Augusta National and Cypress Point fame. So we'll talk about that project and some of the other things that he's got going on. And uh, Jay will be along with me here uh, a little bit later on in this half hour. Then we'll round out this week's show with a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. And, and you know what a great uh, a great golf historian, what a great broadcaster, what a great interviewer Peter has been over the course of his career and how much Peter has come to mean to me as a mentor on this show. So Peter and I will look back over last week's Open Championship and Jordan Spieth's near collapse and then complete reversal into one of the you know greatest five-hole finishes in golf history. We'll also talk about Spieth's place you know in history you know at the, at the tender age of 24. Where does he belong? At, you know already in the golf annals. We'll also look ahead to the PGA Championship, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Peter will join me a little bit later on in the hour. So. We've got a lot of great stories and information coming your way on this edition of Next on the Team. I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next hour. Next on the Team, you know we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonera about all the great things that they have going on up there. Play the courses the champions play. The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort. The 2017 NCGOA National Course of the Year... Our Pete Dye course hosts the first-ever Senior LPGA Championship presented by Old National Bank this July. French Lick's Donald Ross course is looking good as it turns 100 this summer and hosts the Donald Ross Centennial Classic Symmetra Tour event. Book your golf vacation now at FrenchLick.com. Yeah, folks, be sure to go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great a place they have up there. When you beautiful golf courses. It's so fantastic. My family and I, we were fortunate to go up there not all that long ago. So please, FrenchLick.com to, to see for yourself and to book your stay. And speaking of great, over the last several months, you've heard me talking about the meteoric rise of the Bradley Putter Company from concept 
back on la- you know Black Friday last year to one of the sensations at the PGA Merchandise Show back in January. Well, I got mine, and folks, <laughs> it's a beauty. We are proud to be pa- uh, partnering with Bradley to help promote their unique line of putters. They're made from burl wood, and folks, these aren't just ornamental putters. People are raving about the look and the feel of the Bradley putter. I have mine. It's custom made in the you know in the shape and the colors that you like. Mine are black and yellow to support my teams, you know my Pittsburgh team. So go online to BradleyPutters.com to see how fantastic this new line of putters really is. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Company, right? Summer is here, right? Is your wardrobe ready for it? Well, the folks at Bobby Jones sure are, and they can help you find the perfect way to liven up your wardrobe this summer. From polo shirts to tech shorts and pants to belts, you name it. Everything you need to feel great and look great, whether you're in the office, out on the town, or out on the golf course. Go to bobbyjones.com to see their new summer line. Plus, while you're in a Bobby Jones frame of mind, go to bobbyjonesclubs.com to see their great line of drivers, fairway woods, and hybrids designed by one of the game's most influential equipment designers, Jesse Ortiz. Like his father, Lou, and Bobby Jones himself, Jesse has a passion for golf and golf club design. You remember his great tri-metal fairway woods from his days back at Olimar. Well, now he's putting that creativity and his innovative designs to work creating great golf equipment for the Bobby Jones Company. Check them out online again by going to bobbyjonesclubs.com. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Callaway Golf. Callaway has been the fastest-growing golf brand since 2013, and the Chrome Soft Golf Ball is a major reason why. ChromeSoft is extremely fast, incredibly soft, and unbelievably easy to control, which is why guys like Phil Mickelson, Patrick Reed, and Jim Furyk have all changed to the ChromeSoft. You've got to be willing to change to get better. ChromeSoft and the new ChromeSoft X are available in stores now. See what they can do at CallawayGolf.com. ChromeSoft, it's the ball that changed the ball. And, folks, a few weeks ago, you heard uh, the great things that Russ Holden and the folks over at Caddy for a Cure are doing. I believe so heavily in what Russ and his team are doing that we're proud to be uh, partnering with with them now. And one of the unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is now available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service veterans and Fancona anemia. You'll walk side-by-side side with your tour player, experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to this amazing experience, you'll receive a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logoed apparel, an eyewear package, a tour-grade Caddy bib su- suitable for you know framing or getting autographs on, a tin cup ball-marking gift, plus chef's cut real jerky and a professional photograph of your day. Go to caddyforacure.com to learn more. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Champions Tour Pro in 2013 season uh, um, senior uh, open champion, Mr. Mark Wiebe. And let me uh, give you a, a little more background on Mark. He's from Seaside, Oregon, and grew up in Escondido, California. Played his college golf at Palomar Junior College and then transferred to San Jose State. While at Palomar, he was an individual medalist at the 1977 California Amateur, and he won the 1977 Idaho Amateur as well. Turned pro back in 1980 and got his start on the PGA Tour in 83. His first career win came at the 1985 Anheuser-Busch Classic when he beat John Mahaffey with a birdie on the first playoff hole. 
He won again the following year at the 1986 Hardy's Golf Classic by one shot over Kurt Byram, thanks to a birdie on 17 during the final round. Mark matched uh, Bobby Watkins' record for being the youngest winner on the Champions Tour at 50 years and 10 days old when he won the SAS Championship. 2013, like I mentioned, he won the Senior Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, which was the site of last week's Open Championship. He defeated Bernhard Langer on the fifth playoff hole to capture that Senior Major Championship after a final round 66. Later on in 2013, he captured the Pacific Lynx Hawaii Championship again in a playoff, this time over Corey Pavin. In all, he's won eight times as a professional, twice on the uh, twice on the PGA Tour, five times on the Champions Tour and the 1986 Colorado Open. And I'm thrilled that he is back with me again this morning here on Next on the Tee. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, bud. So, Mark, I wanted to start our time with you today by getting your thoughts on the Open Championship last week. It had to bring back a lot of happy memories for you, you know, seeing the course that you won a major on just a few years ago and then, you know, getting the obviously what we saw. But curious, you know, how it felt to you to sit back on TV and sort of reminisce, I'm sure, a little bit about your win there. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it was awesome. I got to tell you, it uh that golf course, for one thing, whether I won or not, that golf course is unbelievable, and that's why everybody talks about it each time. There's a there's an open there because it's just it's such a mentally difficult golf course. Uh, you're you're constantly trying to get after it, but you're you're kind of, you don't want to hit it in any of those bunkers because it, they're so penal. Uh, you may have to go backwards or sideways or uh, who knows. So you're kind of trying to avoid the, the disasters at the same time you're trying to play aggressive golf. And uh, when in my memories there, we played a lot of holes that that's the back tee. So we played most of the holes, in fact, with the same tees that they played this year in the open. And it's just, uh, again, it's such a great golf course. I can't even tell you, but you're right. The memories uh, were fantastic. And to see, you know, to see shots. And the main thing is when on, on 18, I played it so many times because we had five playoff holes. I had four times playing it in regulation. And I had, I think, one practice round. So I played the 18th hole quite a bit. And we would hit driver uh, when the wind wasn't down and know that I couldn't get it to those traps. There's one on the left, one on the right. And obviously want to be in the middle, but wanted to keep short of those just in case. And this year I watched the guys hitting driver over those bunkers that I was rolling up just short of. And I was hitting, I, I hit a three iron, uh, one round, a six iron, one round, a four iron, one round, and the rest were five irons into that green. And I'm watching guys hit driver, taking it over those bunkers uh, and hit wedge into the green. And I thought, well, that's kind of a different hole than the one I played. So it was uh, it was great to see the talent and how long the guys hit it now. And listen, that that is a great golf course. That's all I can tell you. That's just a fabulous golf course. And Mark, when when you won there, you, you know you and Bernard Longer finished the tournament at nine under par, you know in regulation. So around the same scores, 
that we saw Jordan and Matt Kuchar shoot last week. And there were, there were some really, you know, good scores shot during the tournament when you played, right? You shot 65 in the second round, 66 in the final round. Corey Pavin had a 65 in that final round. Peter Sr. and Tom Pernice had a 66. So, you know, from a weather perspective, you know, they had, you know, three of the four days over there where it looked like it was beautiful weather. Was it similar to you or did, when you guys were playing, did you get more of the, you know, the British Open, what we're, what we're, you know, used to seeing, right? The, the rain, the wind, you know, and all of those sorts of things. Were the conditions similar or different when you guys were there? Well, um, they were, they were okay. Uh, okay over there is a lot different than okay over here. Okay over there means sure it was windy. Uh, and we, we, in, in our case, we got called off the course because the rain that came was accompanied by lightning. So we couldn't play. Uh, we had to be taken off the golf course. And I think twice in that last round, we had to come in, delay, go back out, come in, delay, go back out um, because of the lightning. But, uh, for instance, just to let you know the wind, we had uh, on the 10th hole, and I don't remember which round it was, but, it was downwind, and I hit a three iron, and my ball went to almost into a bunker that you do not want to be in that was 200 and I think it was 83 yards. So I hit a wow. three iron just short of that, and the very next day I hit driver off that same hole well short of where I hit the three iron the day before. So it wasn't. That's what I mean. It was okay. We had wins, and obviously that's a big difference, hitting a three-iron 280 yards and hitting a driver the next day probably about 260, and that's probably with a, about a 40-yard roll uh, because you're hitting it low into the wind. So we had that kind of stuff, and I think that's what makes the, that, the Open such a great tournament uh, is because those golf courses don't play – they typically don't play the same every day. So from day to day, you're going to have, although it's the same hole, it just is playing like a, a brand new hole. And I, I think that that is kind of how golf, uh, what, what makes golf so great over there is just that fact of a little wind direction. It's still blowing. It's not gale force, but just changing its direction can change the golf course so much, uh, so I, I would to answer your question. I think that we had probably similar weather. We uh, we had one day that uh, actually most of the, most of the days we played. Seventeen was into the wind, so to get to the green in two on seventeen was ridiculous. Uh, but sixteen, I remember hitting on the last day. I hit a great drive and I hit a sandwich in from one hundred and fifteen yards, and I watched them hitting seven irons in uh, in the tournament this year. And, and then 17, of course, because 16 and 17 go up, they go parallel. One's, one's going out, one's coming in. So if you're into the wind on 16, you're downwind on 17. And because they were in, into the wind on 16 and hitting, you know, driver seven irons and eight irons and six irons, 17 then played downwind. So, uh, but just to watch it and, and to watch the golf this year by, by both Americans, uh, Jordan and uh, Matt Kuchar were that was some golf that were I'm so happy I got to see 
And one more on the open, Mark. What, what were you thinking when you saw Spieth's drive on 13 and the process that he was going through trying to decide where to play his next shot from? Well, the first thing, since I've obviously, since I've played there and had success there, I could not believe he hit that shot that far offline because I think they had that tracer on it on TV where it's the blue line. And, and when his ball took off, I thought, what are you doing? I know that right is better than left, but he's such a great player that I think along with everyone, I was shocked that it went that far offline. And then I heard him in the interview after say that it hit somebody in the head and bounced kind of ricocheted over the dune. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, all I know is that was so far offline, but I, I couldn't believe how he snapped I mean, there was no moping around. Honestly, I thought the first few holes, I thought he was crying a little bit. Um, you know, I heard him say on the first hole, I'm not getting rewarded for hitting a good shot. And I'm like, come on, man, you're so good. You're just saying that for some reason because you don't, you don't really believe that, right? Because he just had a couple uh, things that sounded a little whiny, and then you flip the table on it and you go to the 13th hole, and all of a sudden, he was on top of what was going on. Can I, I'm going to take an unplayable. Can I go back to that, uh, to the range and have a flat lie and hit it over the dune? And he was so calculated at that time that that's when we saw Jordan Spieth and what makes him so awesome. His mind works unlike most guys. Uh, I mean, he just forgot about how bad. And listen, that was a horrible drive he hit. Uh, but he forgot all about that and was so into the next shot uh, that it was it was remarkable because that five uh, and then going on to for the next little string of birdies and eagles that he had. But that five he made there was huge. It was huge. The, just to get it up by the green, and then he had a pitch shot that he had to work with the way the wrinkle of the green was. It kind of made his ball work away from the hole and – just to hit a great pitch shot and then to make that putt. Um, And listen, he wasn't making anything on that front nine. He was missing a lot of putts. I think he three-putted two or three times, and he just didn't look – he looked out of sorts. And and then all of a sudden on 13, and it took took that to snap him back in, apparently, uh, because – all of a sudden on 13, things just – he got dialed in and hit a new level of concentration. And, you know, I, we can all say Matt Kuchar didn't lose that open. Jordan Spieth won that open. And what remarkable golf on an unbelievable golf course. And, Mark, this year's Senior Open Championship is going on this weekend over at uh, Royal Porthcall where – Bernard Longer won the Senior Open Championship by 13 strokes back in 2014, and he's currently tied for the lead with a host of, of other players after the first two rounds, guys like Tom Lehman, Billy Mayfair, Steve Flesh, Mauricio Molinari, uh, Molina, are all right there at one over par as they head into the third round. And you were in the field, obviously, as a defending champion back in 2014, and there were a lot of high scores that year, particularly in the first two rounds for just about everyone except longer. Talk about that golf course and what you guys faced when you played there three years ago. Well, it was a brand new golf course uh, 
to, to almost everyone. No one had really played much in Wales uh, and hadn't even really heard much about the golf course. But when you put the open stamp on any golf course, it becomes uh, special. And I will tell you, just like all, all the venues that you play over there, all the, all the courses that you play over there, it just has that feel of that wispy grass that's on the sides, that's up to your knees, that you can hit out of. It has gorse, it has, which is like scrub oak, so you can't hit out of it. Uh, and it has rolling fairways. It has up and down. It has a number of uh, different lies that you're going to have. The wind direction plays a big part in your score there. Um, it's just a golf course that, you know, you can shoot low on, but you need to be fortunate. I, I played with uh, Bernie that that year that we played after I won, and although Bernie's a great player, don't get me wrong, he's unbelievable, uh, obviously, from what he's done, but he got some bounces that really caught everyone's eye that, you know, it would be uh, – on the left edge of the green, and all of a sudden you'd hear the gallery going crazy because it got a right kick, and then there were a lot of little roly-poly greens that um, your ball might be 40 feet from the hole and get a certain kick and then take the roll of the green down to five or six feet. And it seemed like, you know, one time you go, well, that was lucky. Two times you go, well, that was kind of lucky too. But then when it happens, you think, you know what, I don't think it's lucky. I think he's making making that happen. Uh, so there's some holes that you kind of hit. You can hit away from the hole and end up close. And then there are times you'd hit it at the hole and you might bounce over the wrinkle that guys would be bringing the ball in on. You might bounce over that. Now you have a super hard putt or chip from up and over, kind of up and over a hill down to the hole. So uh, it's got it's got a lot of leeway for, for high and low scores. Um but to tell you the truth, uh, it's it's not a golf course that's super demanding off the tee uh, because you can play out of the rough over there. In fact, sometimes just by the angle into the greens, you'd rather be in the right rough than you would be right down the middle of the fairway just because of the wind direction. And it gives you just a way better angle to hit into a, a wind to a certain or particular pin placement on the green it's better to be in the rough than it would be in the fairway. So that's not unlike a lot of courses. Now at Birkdale, you just want to be in the fairway, period. This one, eh, you can be in the fairway, you can be in the rough. It doesn't really matter. You're playing angles all day at fourth call. So, Mark, you are focused on teaching the game now. And, you know, I, I was curious, wanted to start, you know, that part by talking about, you know, your overall teaching philosophy. What are, what are you trying to instill in your students? Well, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in some basic fundamentals. Uh, you know, I really, I really concentrate on grip and posture and alignment. And then whatever rhythm you have or choose or what your rhythm is, uh, you know, you have a Nick Price rhythm, which is kind of fast and quick, or Tom Watson, or you can have more of an Ernie Els or Ben Crenshaw rhythm, which is kind of long and fluid and takes a while to get done. And so everybody's kind of got a different action. Uh, so after uh, after those fundamentals that I work with, 
you know what? There's you can't teach generically. Uh, this is my opinion, obviously, but you just can't teach generic golf. So you, I really focus on teaching the individual, and everybody's body moves in their own way. Um, and all you have to do is watch, especially watching the senior tour uh, or the champions tour, because you have these great personality golf swings that you can you can see from afar. Um, now you might go to a tournament and you don't recognize golf swings because there's so many that look the same. Consequently, there are a lot of guys built the same because that's the only way to have similar swings is to have similar builds. So I really focus on teaching the individual, and I, I really like everybody's body moves in their own way and, and trying to be consistent and find a swing that's repetitive. And, you know, my classic example always is Jim Furyk um, because I've, I've gotten in actually a couple arguments with guys about, uh, now nothing against Tiger Woods, but uh, Tiger would be on the screen of, of a teacher and they have a split screen. They got Tiger's swing up there and then the person they're teaching. And, and I always said, why are you using tiger swing? You know, you're working with drivers. Why are you using tiger swing? And they would say, well, he's the best golfer in the world and I, at the time. And I said, no, he is. But why are you using his swing? Because he can't hit a driver. He can't drive it in the fairway with a driver. Um, but Jim Furyk hits more fairways and hits more greens in regulation easily than tiger did, did at that time. And by the way, he still does. He's awesome. But it's because he has a repetitive golf swing. He swings the same way every single time. And that's his fingerprint. That's his method. That's his look. That's the way his body works. And if somebody were to take Jim Furyk and try to give him a lesson and change that action into what they think is better looking or more uh, – there's so many golfers to choose from, but there's some swings out there that are incredible. Um, if somebody were to try to make Jim Furyk swing like Adam Scott, Jim Furyk would probably quit golf because he couldn't play swinging like Adam Scott. So I really try to teach individually, and I love uh, what some people might think is a flaw in a swing. To me, that's their personality showing through. That's the way – their body moves. Bruce Litsky was a great example of everybody said he came over the top of the ball. That's all they ever talked about, but he did it every time, every time the ball would move a little left to right. And it was, it's like he had remote control on his golf ball. And, but he had that swing that was repetitive. Um, Lee Trevino, um, Jack Nicholas with the flying elbow, Raymond Floyd with, and Nancy Lopez with the huge inside move going back way inside teachers would never teach that they would try to eliminate that i would rather take that and run with it i'd rather use that as a positive in your golf swing something that you can repeat and if that's how your body moves then let's not try to get rid of it let's enhance that so that's where i come from and i I, i've seen teaching go in in a weird area when i was still playing and uh and i i just didn't like the cookie cutter type of uh teaching methods that guys had um 
and I, I don't believe in it either. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm really a proponent of natural movement of your own body. And, uh, you know, you get a, you can't teach the same to Ian Woosnam as you would teach to Ernie Els because you have a short kind of a compact guy in Ian Woosnam who has a great golf swing. And then you have an Ernie Els or a Bob Tway or a Stenson or any of the tall guys they're going to have a way different look than Ian is, and they're both equally great golf swings. You can't fit one into the other because they're physically it's impossible. So um, I guess if I have a philosophy, it's uh, it's that physically, and then I really try to help people manage their game because I you know I've heard it from my son for years that one of the reasons that I had success was not because I was long or because I hit my irons any better than anyone else. I was a pretty good putter, but I just learned to manage my game. So I, I think that we can all, all learn from managing your game and what you're capable of each day. Some days you got it going and some days you don't, and it's how to, what you do on each of those different situations. You know, one day you might play more aggressive. One day you might play a little bit more defensive. The object is to shoot lower scores. So, um, that, I guess in a nutshell, that's that's my philosophy. So let's expand just a little bit on that last part, Mark, because you know I'm more on the mental side, right? Because you know everyone faces adversity, you know, out on the golf course, torn around the golf. You know, whether you've you know you've had you had a bad swing, you've had a bad hole, or even you know if it's just you know to your point, it, you know today just wasn't your day, and you've had a bad round. What do you teach your students, you know, to do when they've had adversity or they've played poorly or they just, meet, you know, had a bad hole? So you're coming off of a double and, you, you know, you're headed to the next tee. How do you put that, you know, behind you in the rear view and then refocus and go on from that point? Well, I would say you can – there are many ways. But the best way is to watch somebody that's good at something um, like that. So my example would be, and I've watched it for years, and I've played alongside of it for years, Tom Watson is the best at playing one hole at a time. He's the absolute best. So there's a way that he has that when the hole's over, and he could have made a 10 on it, that it's over. And he doesn't think about it again. Now, maybe that night he might – I got to think you might think about it a little bit, but during the round, he just doesn't. So what's I, everybody's like, I, I've already said, everybody's a little different. So with which student do you know um, that you can give certain suggestions to on how to play that one shot at a time, one hole at a time. And when the hole's over, it's actually over. You don't get to replay it not until the next day if you're in a tournament or maybe next week or maybe a year from now, who knows, but it's actually when it's over, it's over. So I try to talk about uh, different examples, different uh, times in my life that I've either done it or seen it with one of my playing partners um, that when, when it, when the hole's over and you just made that double and you're kicking yourself, that, but it's you can go ahead and kick yourself. I, I used to tell my son, get mad, get over it. Don't let it dwell. 
So there's got to be a way for each person. Some some people might be more uh, outwardly, maybe need to make an outward gesture and a meaning, uh, snap their fingers, clap their hands. You see Matt Kuchar when he plays. If he has a bad hole, I promise you, he kind of claps his hands together. And I'm like, wow, that's his way. That's his way to erase, or maybe not erase is not the right word, move on. It's just his way. He he had a bad hole, I think, on Sunday. And uh, it may have been Saturday. And he was walking off the green, and he just was swinging his arms, and he just kind of clapped his hands together. And I said, there it is. He just let go. He just moved on. And that's so some people need that outwardly physical movement, and some people can do it in their head. They can just say, well, you know, I made a six. I made a double. It's stupid. Uh, I can't wait for the next hole, though, because I know I can do better than that. So we're, we're constantly um, working on uh, mental thoughts, uh, mental images, um, situations, I've been here before. I'm going to be here again. This is not the last round of golf I'm ever going to play. Sure, it was a horrible double, but thank God it's over. I get to move on to the next hole now where I lay zero as I start the next hole. So there's there's ways uh, for everyone to be able to move on, and you have to, I think as an instructor, you have to find each person's way or maybe give them examples and let them choose a way that they want to move on. There's, I just, again, even in mental, it's hard to teach generically to people because people are wound differently. I mean, it, it is, uh, we're just not all the same. We just, we can all kind of have the same outcomes and stuff, but to the way to kind of maneuver through those times uh, become very individual. Mark, there's so many things that I'd love to get more of your thoughts on. Um, and I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. Let our listeners know, how can they you know, stay up to date, you know, reach out to you as a teacher, stay up to date with the things you're doing, whether it's online or over social media? Well, um, let me see. My website is markweebygolf.com. Uh, pretty easy. It's W-I-E-B-E. Uh, my email is mweeby at pgatour.com, another easy one to remember. Those are probably the two best. Uh, I do do Twitter a little bit. I'm not, you know, I'm older. I'm almost 60 now, so the, the social networking I'm a little slow at, but I do have some kids that help me out. Uh, I have three kids, and they all go, Dad, you can't say that, or Dad, you should have said this, or whatever, so I keep <laughs> keeping me in check. But, uh, those are the two best. It's markweebygolf.com is my website. And uh, that can lead you to my email and my phone number and everything else. So I uh, love to love to help people out. Uh, like I said, that's what I do now. And just like when I played, I'm going to do my best at it. Well, Mark, like I said, it's fantastic having you know got to spend a, you know, a little more time with you today. I hope you'll come back soon, like I say, and share more of your your stories, your insights, and your teaching thoughts with us because you're fantastic. Well, you're the best, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. And I love love your show. Thank you very much, Mark. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. In between now and then, all the best to you and your family. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Mark. 
That's Mark Wiebe, again, 2013 uh, Senior Open champion and uh, won a bunch of times between the, the regular tour and the senior tour. But uh, Mark is fantastic. Again, his site, markwiebegolf.com. Check him out there. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for an instructor, I can't imagine a better one to get hooked up with than Mark. So we look forward to getting Mark back on the show again, hopefully again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Jay Blasey, I want to remind you about our friends over at SyncIt.com. You know how we like to keep things positive here on Next on the Tee and have a positive approach both in life and out on the golf course. Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought of sinking the putt in your mind with their great line of T-shirts and hats. To win any tournament, you've got to sink the final putt, right? Well, we wake up every day. To finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, and get better at it each and every day. Have the confidence to push forward towards your dreams with unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check them out online at sinkit.com. And we also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt Creek Golf Retreat. Let's hear a word from our friend Joe Lajanusa about what a wonderful place it is. If you're looking for a great place for your annual golf outing, a weekend golf getaway, or just a round of golf with your buddy, then Salt Creek Golf Retreat is just what you're looking for. Centrally located in Nashville, Indiana, just south of Indianapolis and west of Cincinnati, this challenging but fair 18-hole golf course appeals to all skill levels, and its scenic views of rolling hills and tree-lined fairways are sure to make golfing memories for years to come. Owned and operated by former Purdue and New York Giants fullback Randy Manier, Salt Creek Golf Retreat offers stay-and-play packages that include golf and a fully furnished one- or two-bedroom condo. After your round, be sure to stop by the 19th Hole Sports Bar and Restaurant for great food, fun, and drinks. Randy and his staff will treat you like family. For more information, log on to saltcreekgolf.com. That's saltcreekgolf.com. Or give them a call at 812-558-5944. Salt Creek Golf Retreat. Start making your golfing memories today. You're listening to Next on the Tee, available as a podcast on TuneIn and Podbean. Let's get back to Chris and more of the show. And now joining me on the French Lake Resort guest line is Jay Blasey. Let me give you some more background on Jay. He graduated from the University of Wisconsin with his degree in landscape architecture back in 2000. After graduating, he joined Robert Trent Jones Jr.'s golf uh, course architectural firm. He then helped design Chambers Bay, the Patriot Golf Club in Owasso, Oklahoma, and as well as the practice facility at Stanford. 2012, Jay went on his, uh, his, to create his own uh, design company, Jay Blasey Design. He, uh, he is designing and redesigning both uh, public and private courses, and he's working on some exciting projects right now, and I'm delighted to have him with me on Next on the Tee. Good morning, Jay. Thanks for coming on the show. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, Jay, let's start off by going all the way back to the beginning for you. I read that you picked up a golf club for the first time at age two, and you had a, a putting green in your backyard. Talk about uh, your love affair of golf and how it all got started. Yeah, my, my dad uh, grew up on the south side of Chicago and was a, a caddy, and that's how he fell in love with the game. And uh, 
And then after college, he, he uh, started uh, his, his career as a teacher. And so in the, in the summers, he had a summer break and he'd go work on a, a grounds crew at a golf course just to make a little extra money and be around golf. And when he bought his first house, uh, they, uh, he convinced the superintendent that he was working with at the golf club to uh, come over and build a putting green in the backyard. So I was uh, certainly the beneficiary. You know, when I was born, he brought plastic golf clubs to the, to the hospital. And, and, uh, you know, early on, I had always had a putting green in the backyard. So I was, I was putting as a toddler and, you know, by three and four, I was, uh, chipping and putting and and playing in little competitions and things like that so golf's been a part of my my life my whole life and then you know from there jay i read that you know you wanted to you know you decided you wanted to design golf courses by what the age of 10 talk about you know why all of a sudden you know creating a golf course and being a a golf course architect uh, became something that uh, was a passion of yours well, you know, I, I think it was just um, one of those things, you know, as a little kid, we'd go out to dinner and, you know, they give you the, the placemat and the crayons and I, you know, I'd flip it over and draw golf holes. When we had our little backyard putting green, even though the lot was tiny, we made up a little course and, and made up a little scorecard and, and doing things like that. We used to go on a lot of family vacations and we would always drive rather than fly. So, you know, I'd be sitting in the back of the car for, 15 hours or something like that and I would just look out and in the farm fields that we were driving through I just envisioned golf holes so it it was just always something that was kind of in my mind without me really knowing about it and then you know obviously as I got older uh in high school or and such there you know started to read some books about it and you rec- you realize that oh there are people who actually do this for a living and whatnot and but but in reality it was my parents who kind of gave me the kick in the butt you know when it was time to go off to college and you know pick a major you know i was just going to go into business or something and uh and they said are you crazy you know you're lucky enough to have passion in life you you got to go for it and you know you can always do business but uh very few people in the world figure out you know what their real passion is and you got to give it a shot so uh when i signed up uh, for landscape architecture in college, you know, I probably didn't know the difference between an oak tree or a maple tree, but I, I knew all about, I knew all about golf courses and, and golf strategy and things like that. So, you know, take us from there, right, Jay, you know, how are you able to go from getting your degree at Wisconsin in landscape architecture to, to working for Robert Trent Jones and his design company? Well, you know, I think like most people will tell you, there's, uh, always uh, hard work and dedication and, and, and talent and all that. But at the end of the day, sometimes it boils down to timing and luck. And as it relates to, to landing with RTJ2, I'm sure all of those were ingredients. You know, I, I, like I said, I knew golf. I'd been exposed to a lot of great golf and I studied golf kind of my whole life. But uh, landscape architecture taught me all the other stuff. And the reason I went into landscape architecture is I researched that that's what most golf architects have a degree in. And so, you know, you learn things like scale and grading and drainage and uh, a little bit of soil science, a little bit of botany and things like that. But all through college, you know, my goal was golf. So anytime we were doing a project, you know, if, if the project in college was to design a backyard, I was designing a backyard with a golf hole in it and things like that. And so I did two year long 
projects that were kind of independent study projects related to golf. And it just so happened that one of those was to, to do a mock design for a second course at the University of Wisconsin golf course, University of Ridge. And that's a golf course that I knew very well. I played in the state tournament there. I worked there in high school. I knew the land intimately. And it just so happened that that golf course was designed by Robert Trent Jones, too. So uh, here I had kind of built a portfolio in college that had golf-related work. And when I was reaching out to places to try and land an internship or a job, uh, you know, if that comes across the desk of somebody at Robert Trent Jones and it's like, oh, I know that. I did. I worked on that golf course. I know that piece of property. <laughs> you got a pretty good talking point to start with. So, again, a lot of hard work, but sometimes it boils down to a little bit of luck and timing as well. And Jay, you know, I, I also read, you know, in high school and, you know, as any, you know, golf course architect would be, right, your dream is to design a U.S. Open golf course. And, and you got to do just that as a, a major contributor on the Robert Trent Jones team that designed Chambers Bay, which became the youngest golf course to ever hold a U.S. Open back in 2015. It was awarded the Open in 2008. What was it like for you when you heard that the USGA had awarded the Open to uh, Chambers Bay? Well, it was certainly certainly a dream come true. I mean, for for me, I was uh, uh, a young, naive twenty-something. You know, it was my first ever project to to really play a major role in. And you know, the golf, the, the project itself, the golf course, and and everything about it just rep- represented so many things that are near and dear to my heart. You know, it was a municipal project, so it was open to to everybody it was pierce county washington was the the entity developing the golf course we were reclaiming an abandoned sand and gravel mine so it really was kind of an environmental uh cleanup effort in many ways it was lynx golf it was sandy soils it was right on puget sound so it's a breathtaking setting um you know so it just represented so many things that were unique and special you know and and i think like anybody, if it's your first time, you know, you pour your heart and soul into it and, and, uh, you know, you're just, you're just so excited about everything just because it's a first. But then when you couple all those other factors that it, you know, many golf architects, uh, wait their whole life to have an opportunity to work in sand or to work next to a major body of water. But, uh, as it relates to the open, you know, that was something that we had envisioned early on. That was part of our initial interview pitch and, um, you know, the county county asked, you know, we think we've got a special place. One of the things that we've heard is that we ought to host big tournaments. And and the first time I got up there, and I know others at the at the office, we looked around and said, wow, this is unlike anything we've ever seen before. And so as part of the initial interview presentation, you know, we tried to to share how passionately passionately we felt the potential of the site was and. Um, I, I reached out to one of the guys at the office. I said, "What if we made up bag tags that uh, that said U.S. Open on them, as a, and we could have that be our final slide, and we could hand out bag tags just to tell them how uh, you know how confident we were." You know, keep in mind at that time there hadn't been a new golf course that had hosted the U.S. Open since 1975. So we're talking you know 35, 40 years, thousands of golf courses built in the country, and none of them. Had that kind of done this. So, um, 
we, we had these bag tags made up that said we tried to guess what would be the best case scenario. You know, if you built the golf course and it opened in, you know, 2007 or eight, what would be your best case scenario for when you might get a U.S. Open? And so we had these bag tags made up that said 2030 U.S. Open. So uh, it, no doubt, definitely a dream come true for all involved. So how did you feel about how the tournament played out and uh, the reaction you got from the players? Well, going into it, uh, I, I knew, we all knew that it, specifically from the players that there was going to be a lot of different reaction. And I knew that a ton of players would hate it. And the reason for that is because it was different from what they know and, and what they like, you know, if you're, if your livelihood depends on how well you play golf and you score, you want a golf course that is easy to understand and is soft. You know, you want to, you know that you spend your whole life beating balls and working on your swing and all those things. When you hit a ball that flies 212 yards, you want to know that it's going to end up at 212 yards. And, Chambers Bay is the opposite of that. It's a Lynx golf course. It's it's wide open. There's all sorts of room out there, but the ground, the ground contours and the ground plane are the the defense. And so, you know, you can't just pick a number and fly it there. You need to figure out, okay, where's the hole and how am I going to get there? Am I going to land 25 yards short right and hit a draw, or or because there's a slope there, am I going to hit a fade into that slope to die the ball? So there's, it's just very, very different than everything that they play week in and week out on the PGA Tour. And they have, you know, a little less control of the golf ball. It's a little bit more of a mental challenge than just strictly uh, a physical challenge. So we knew a lot of them would, would hate the golf course because of that. And that's okay. Um, I thought the course played brilliantly uh, from tee to green you know, the, the, the balls were running out. The ground contours mattered. People had to think. You know, I think one of the things that was most exciting for me was to watch players standing in the fairway talking with their caddy and, and motioning over, you know, do I hit it here? Do I hit it there? Trying to figure it out. That's really exciting stuff that you don't see often. And, you know, obviously a lot of the, the talking points that week came about the greens and whatnot, and, and that was an unfortunate situation for all involved you know i'm I'm very close with the the team up there uh the the grounds crew and the superintendents up there and those guys are great guys they really know what they're doing and they're you know they're studs in the industry so to have that become a storing line and and become a talking point you know i think that was hard on everybody you know in reality you know there was kind of a, a perfect storm of of different things that happened in terms of weather conditions and the different grass things and all that. But uh, it was too bad that that took away from so many of the great things that happened that week. You know, they, they had their all time best merchandise sales. They, uh, the volunteers, the sign up for volunteering was the fastest they've ever had. Uh, it had the best leaderboard of any open in the last 25 years, the best back nine in, in reality, as much as everybody made a big deal about the, the greens, you know, the putting stats, more putts were made there than in most opens and things like that. So all in all, I thought it was fantastic. There were so many wonderful things that came about it. Um, but obviously, you know, everybody's aware of, of both sides of that coin. 
And Jay, just a couple more before we let you go. And you look at, you know, some of the things you're involved with now, Sharp Park Golf Club in San Francisco and Alistair McKenzie design is, uh, you know, that that course is right there, you know, along the ocean. Talk about, you know, what you're doing there trying to uh, to save that place. Yes, Sharp Park is a very, very special place. Uh, you know, uh, for for many, many years, it's it's kind of been overlooked and under the radar in terms of uh, great golf, not only in the, the Bay Area or California, but really in the country. And it's such a special place. As you mentioned, uh, golf course opened in the 1930s, Alistair McKenzie. It actually is right on the Pacific Ocean. It's in Pacifica, California, just about 15 minutes south of San Francisco. And it's it's a municipal golf course, and so uh, you know when you when you think about um, municipal golf, this is the place that you should think about. There's um, people from seven different generations that are out there on any one day, and you've got all kinds of backgrounds of people from all over the the country and the world uh, playing there. And so it's a special golf course with with great history behind it, and yet you know over time a lot of that Mackenzie has been has been lost over the last eight or 10 years. The golf course has been in, in jeopardy of being closed. Uh, there's been lawsuits, uh, related to, uh, frog and snake habitats and, and whatnot. And two, two gentlemen in the, in the Bay area, Richard Harris, and Bo links got together and, and formed the San Francisco public golf Alliance and said, Hey, wait a minute. We're golfers. We're environmentalists. This is a national treasure, international treasure of a golf course. We need to, save and protect it we want to do that while protecting the habitat but these two things can coexist you know ironically you know the, the species are there because of the golf course not in spite of it and so um, they got together and rallied the troops and and for you know the better part of a decade now have won all the various legal battles to to save the golf course and now uh you know we've got a little bit of momentum uh at our back and so now that now the effort is to try and push forward and then actually restore the golf course and bring back uh as much of the mckenzie as we can and, and really kind of polish polish the gem if you will and reintroduce it to the golf world but it's certainly uh, a special place and one that golfers all around the country all around the world can get behind because it just represents all that's good about our game and uh you know it's the only public mckenzie golf course available on the ocean uh, in, in the U.S. So uh, it's something worth preserving. Jay, you're doing so so many great things. You know, talk about, uh, you know, any other projects you've got going on right now. Well, I've just spent the, the, the last couple of years uh, working on a project that's been uh, special to me down in Southern California in Orange County, uh, a private club called uh, Santa Ana Country Club. And this is an example of a, a club that's in a, in a great location for anybody who's been uh, to Orange County. It's right near Newport Beach and John Wayne Airport. So, you know, perfect weather and, and beautiful scenery and a great spot. Uh, and it was a club that's, you know, the, the history dates back to the early 1900s, 1901. And yet over time, over over the various decades, you know, you know golf committees and whatnot got involved and, and the course that was there a few years ago was essentially a 1980s golf course with a lot of artificial features. They had added lakes and flower beds and a, a waterfall and planted thousands and thousands of trees and, and whatnot and, and lots of artificial mounding and things like that. And we got to a point where we were studying the golf course and we realized that there was a lot of 
deferred maintenance. The irrigation system needed to be replaced. There were issues with the bunkers and the greens and whatnot. And so after a lot of study, rather than just uh, reinvesting and putting everything back exactly where it is, we said, hey, you know, we've got something pretty special here if, if we take a different approach to it. Uh, it's the only golf course in the county, uh, cl private club in the county that dates back to the early 1900s, which was a special time in golf architecture known as the golden age. And we said, why don't we, why don't we craft a golden age golf course as opposed to something modern with a bunch of artificial features? So we, we basically, uh, rebuilt a brand new golf course on the same site and crafted it in such a way that it looks and feels like it's been there for a hundred years. We removed, you know, all the artificial features and got rid of, uh, you know, the lakes and the flower beds and the waterfalls and instead, uh, you know, placed the holes where they fit into the land best. And by reorganizing the site and, and rerouting the golf course, we were able to add a lot of amenities. They had a very uh, short practice area with nets and poles. You couldn't hit full ball, uh, full leg uh, shots. So, but by rerouting everything, now we have a 340-yard practice facility that's got a nine-hole short course inside of it. Uh, you know, the golf course is longer from the back tees. It's shorter from the forward tees, so there's a, a better spot for everybody out there. We were able to add a bigger putting green and an event lawn and all those things. So very excited about that to, to create something that's a lot more natural. We were able to remove about 38 acres of turf. So uh, in California, you know, we've gone through this horrible drought and, and water is the key issue. So by doing this, we're going we're gonna to reduce our water use by 30 to 40 percent. So uh, it's a great example of, of something that can be done. Obviously, we just did it in Orange County, but that same model, uh, you know, it works in Minneapolis, it works in Atlanta, it works in New York, it works in Indianapolis. Uh, you know, if there's a, if there's a club that's in a good location with good demographics, but the, the golf design isn't great, there's an opportunity to do something special there. Jay, before we let you go, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's online or over social media? Uh, well, on Twitter, I'm at Jay Blasey. Uh, online, my website is www.jayblasey.com. Uh, and uh, people want to email or get a hold of me, uh, it's blaseygolf at gmail.com. Great stuff, Jay. Thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to join me here on the show. I hope you'll come back soon. Keep us up to date with all the great things you're doing. Update us on what's going on at Sharp Park because it's all outstanding stuff. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. All right, Jay. Take care. All the best to you and your family. Appreciate it. You too. That is Jay Blasey, and he spells his last name B-L-A-S-I, so Jay Blasey, and uh, he's doing some really great stuff and obviously some great projects going on. That Sharp Park Golf Course, unbelievable, the McKenzie design and the things he's doing there. So check him out, follow him online and uh, on, on Twitter. We'll stay up to date, and we'll get him back on the show hopefully real soon. All right, I've got my next guest, Peter Kessler, hanging on the line. We'll get to Peter after these quick words about our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. I want to give a shout out to our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore for a fun interactive experience and the best selection of golf clubs, apparel, and gear for golfers of all levels. Check out our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. 
Whether you're a pro or a beginner, they're your one-stop golf shop for great golf deals on all your golfing needs. You can save yourself a little time by shopping and placing your order online at PGATourSuperstore.com. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to interact with Peter on his Facebook page and on Twitter, at Peter Kessler. As I've said many times, no one knows more about the history of golf or interviewed more of the greatest players of all time from the 20th and 21st century than Peter has. When you layer on top of that his magical voice and the thousands of great stories, then you, you've got something really special and somebody who's very special. There are some great contributors to the game of golf in the World Golf Hall of Fame, people like Frank Cherkinian and Peter Alice, Henry Longhurst going in this year. But going right in alongside those guys should be Peter Kessler. And, you know, that, you know, you want to talk about great and you want to talk about people who had a great influence and have had, you know, a great contribution to the game of golf over the last 20 years. No one fits that description any better than Peter Kessler does. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for coming back on the show. Good to be with you, my friend. I hope your weekend's off to a good start. Nah, thank you. Yes, I hope yours as well. Thank you. So, Peter, I want to start off our time today by getting your thoughts on last week's Open Championship. What did you think about what you saw? Well, it was quite amazing. I, I, I think, you know, with no disrespect to Matt Kuchar, I think that if Jordan could have picked anybody in the top five guys who were behind him to have to play head-to-head, that he would have picked Matt Kuchar because of Matt's history of not being a closer. You know, he's won seven times. He won the USAM. He won the Players' Championship and six other professional tournaments. But, you know, Matt's another one of these guys who should have won, you know, 25 times with four or five majors. He, You know, he's made almost $50 million on tour. You know, I'll bet his average finish over the last few years has probably been 12th or 14th. I mean, he's incredibly consistent he's just not actual highest level of competition he's not quite there with Dustin and he's not quite there with Jordan Spieth and he does have a history of getting nervous in big moments you know a few years ago I remember at the Masters he hit it into 15 the par 5 to about 4 feet and made the putt for eagle and took a one-shot lead in the Masters, and he looked absolutely freaked out of his mind. His skin got white, and his skin got pulled across the bones of his face, and he reminded me of Greg Norman when Greg Norman used to get in trouble, and he used to get, you know, his, his face used to change complexion and become more white, and the skin would become stretched. And I was sitting with a friend of mine watching Matt on the 16th tee right after he took the lead, and I said, He's going, to, he's going to make a four. He's going to either hit it in the top right of the green and three putt down that hill, or he's going to leave it shorter. He's going to do something to take himself out of this situation. And it's exactly what happened. Unfortunately, I wish I had been wrong, but he hit it to the top right portion of the green. He knocked it 12 feet behind. He missed it. And that was the end of the golf tournament for Matt. And, you know, he's had a number of chances to close. Not so long ago, he came to the last hole of the lead and, snap hooked a hybrid into the water and made a double and lost a golf tournament. So he's not the guy that you would be most afraid of to play on the Sunday, especially when you've got a lead on him. And also Kuchar and Spieth had played in the match play tournament a couple of years ago, and Spieth made nine birdies before he closed him out on the 17th hole. So 
you can imagine Matt must have made seven or eight for it to get to the 17th hole if Jordan made nine birdies. And I just think Jordan has his number. And very early on in the final round, when Spieth went three over after four holes, Kuchar didn't take advantage. He had a couple of 10-footers for birdie that he didn't make. I mean, you know, the guys only make a third of their putts from 10 feet, but that's over a period of time. You know, when it really counts, you've got to make your 10-footers like Jack did, like Tiger did, and and Kuchar doesn't have that reputation. And so, you know, Jordan played very iffy golfer, you know, until he got into the, the second third of the back nine, and Kuchar had chances to to to, to move ahead. And, you know, he was hitting irons short into bunkers with pins way back. And nobody talked about it, but Kuchar hit some of the greatest bunker shots I've ever seen in, in, in last week's open final round. He had like 80 and 90 footers that he was hitting to two feet instead of 12 feet, which would have been acceptable. And, you know, in 15 and 17, the bunker shots he hit were just out of this world to make birdies. And, of course, he bogeyed 18 out of the bunker, which, you know, solidified the win for Jordan, which he already had pretty securely in hands with a two-shot lead walking up the last fairway and ended up winning by three. But uh, I just thought what Jordan did is, is it reminded me of Jack Nicklaus at the 86 Masters. You know, Jack, in that case, Jack was sort of out of the tournament and in the fourth round and then he birdied nine ten and eleven and he bogeyed 12 but then he birdied 13 and of course eagled 15 and birdied 16 and birdied 17 and almost birdied 18 and greg norman actually caught him with four birdies in a row through the 17th hole and then blew that four iron to the right on the last hole and made bogey and tom kite had a putt to put himself in there with jack from about eight feet that he missed on the final hole but it reminded me of jack you know, the best player who ever lived doing exactly what he needed to do at exactly the right time and making all these incredible putts. The ones on 9, 10, and 11 were insane. And Sandy Lyle, who was his playing partner, said later it looked like it came out of an automated machine when Jack was hitting putts during the final round that every stroke was exactly the same and everyone was absolutely pure in it and that there wasn't anything that he could have done to improve the stroke or the role that he put on the ball. And, of course, that's exactly what Jordan did when it mattered the most. I mean, I thought, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of him taking a lot of time to make his decision when he blew the ball way right on 13, but and nobody's ever been in that situation before. It was extremely complicated. You had the vans, you had the driving range, you had the line of sight. And there was an official with him the whole time, and they were going through the options. And even Jack Nicklaus said later that he didn't think that he would have thought of or he didn't know if he would have thought of going all the way back to the driving range or even asking if it was in play, which was the smart move. So, you know, as long as there's an official with you, there's no clock running. And then once he put the ball on the ground, when all the options had been considered and he chose the one that he did, he went ahead and played the shot. So I don't blame Jordan for taking the time. I personally thought it was very smart. I thought it bordered on genius, the fact that he kept himself so calm for so long in such a stressful moment. You know, and a lot of people would have said, just go back to the tee and replay the hole. But that's an automatic six. If you make a par on the second hole, then you're really in trouble. And, of course, the up and down that he made was out of this world and hasn't gotten enough attention. I mean, that chip that he hit on 13 was a very dicey little shot. There were lots of mounds and rolls, and 
He had to land it just on the front right edge of the green and have it go up a mound, down a mound, up a mound, and then move straight left and finish eight feet left of the hole. And then he makes the great eight-footer. There's a slow, really tough left-to-right slider for, you know, the best bogey I've ever seen that I can think of when it mattered. And then, uh, you know, of course, he then went on the Jordan Spieth pedal to the metal spree, and we just don't see that very often. And, I, you know, Matt was one under the last five, including the bogey on the last hole, and Jordan was five under the last five, and that wiped out the one-shot Kuchar lead, and you know, and then he blew right on by him. But Spieth's a better player than Matt Kuchar. Matt's almost 40. Jordan just turned 24 the other day. You know, and you can't, and he's already got more PGA Tour wins than Matt. He's got more majors than Matt. And he's had a more successful career at the age of 23 than Matt has had over his entire life of 39 years. So, you know, you're really talking about a, a great, consistent player in Matt Kuchar, but he's just not Spieth like quality. And the two records compare that, particularly when you look at their ages. And Kuchar would be the first one to tell you that he is underperformed over the course of his career in terms of closing out tournaments. You know, he should have been a 25 and five guy, not a, not a seven and none guy. And, uh, I just thought it was stunning, you know, because Jordan actually statistically is the best iron player on tour this year. He's not the best putter on tour this year. He's been the best iron player on tour this year. And he's improved that part of his game and he's improved his driving and he's a little bit longer, and when he's wayward, except for the crazy one on 13, he's wayward by 5 and 10 feet, not by 15 and 20 yards, and his iron play is very imaginative. You know, he almost made a hole-in-one with the 6-iron on 14, and he still had to make the 6-footer. I mean, they don't give you, though. You still have to make the putt. And I just think when the chips are down, that Jordan Spieth, when he's in position to do something, is very, you know, Jack and very Tiger-like and uh, even Billy Casper-like. You know, Billy won 51 times on the PGA Tour, and Nicholas, you know, told me many times that the first name he looked for on the back nine of a tour event was Billy Casper because he knew Billy wasn't going to fold and that he would just keep hitting that little cut shot into play and making pars and birdies, and Billy was arguably just about as good a putter as Jack over the course of his career. You're one of the greatest that ever lived on the putting green and in, in many occasions made the putts he had to make when he had to make them, including against Arnold Palmer on the final nine of, of the Sunday round at uh, the Olympic club in 1966, you know, Billy, Billy birdied 13 and Billy birdied 15 and Billy birdied 16. And, that was a very Spieth-like performance. And so that's why Billy Casper has gone down as one of the great players of all time. He won 51 times on the PGA Tour hitting a cut shot. Then he won 10 more times on the Champions Tour hitting a draw. He just didn't win a lot of majors over the course of his career, but he won at Wayne Foot at the U.S. Open, and he won an Olympic club, and he won the Masters in a playoff over Littler in 70. And you know, and he was just another, there's another special player who doesn't get his due of doing great things down the stretch. You don't win 51 tournaments by backing into him. You do it by making birdies on the final nine and shooting 31s and 32s. And I think that we don't know what kind of player we should compare Jordan Spieth to because 
he the hardest thing to do in golf obviously is to win important golf tournaments and major championships and the second hardest and the rarest thing to do on the PGA tour is to be consistent from week to week and Jack Nicklaus used to play 16 17 events and he was basically always in contention Tiger used to play between 16 and 22 events and he was always in contention he made 142 straight cuts in a row and he only had five missed cuts up until the fire hydrant incident where Jordan at the age of 23 has already got 17 missed cuts. So we know the tiger was more consistent. We know that Jack was more consistent. And then you take a look at the other end of the spectrum of great players who accomplish things in very few weeks over the course of the year. And you come up with Phil Mickelson, who since 91, when he turned pro, has always made a career out of two or three good weeks for the whole year. Never the leading money winner, never the player of the year, never never won the Barden stroke average, never won any of the season-ending titles in 25 years. And here's a guy with five majors and 42 wins on the PGA Tour. You know, he's going to go down as one of the best players who ever lived and the wildest driver of any great player that ever lived and one of the diciest players from inside of five feet. And I'm not his, was not never his strength. It's not Jordan's strength. Jordan Rakes ranks 50th in total putting on the PGA Tour and first in iron play. And you wouldn't have guessed that if you didn't know that. You would have said Jordan was the number one putter. And when it matters, Jordan just seems to be able to make putts that other people don't make. I mean, he made a great putt on 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. I mean, that's five in a row at the end of a major championship, meaning the 50-footer for Eagle, the 30-footer for Birdie, the two 10-footers for Birdies, the, the slider for Bogey on number 13. You know, and that's what the really super-duper all-time players do. And so my question really to myself is, will Jordan become more Tiger and Jack-like in terms of his relative consistency and being contention more often than say a Phil Mickelson has been over the course of his career. And my guess is that he will be more like Tiger and Jack and less like Phil. You know, he just won for the third time this year. He won at Pebble. He won a couple of weeks ago holding a bunker shot in the playoff, which he's done before. And, uh, of course, it was, this was a brilliant win. He's got the third leg of the slam and he's only 23 and, I certainly like his chances of completing a career slam more than I like the chances of Rory McIlroy or Phil Mickelson, who each need one. Rory needs the Masters, but he's not a really great putter. And so over 72 holes at the Masters tournament, if you put, you know, Jordan and Rory on the greens for 72 holes, Jordan's going to putt better than Rory is over 72 holes at Augusta National. And it's going to be tough for Rory to win there. I think, unless he has a great putting week and he's got serious, serious demons losing the four shot lead, you know, as Jordan did a few years, just a couple of years ago. Uh, but Jordan has exercised his demons, I think, at the Open Championship. And I think that Rory's an iffy putter. And I think that he is more like Phil Mickelson and having a few good weeks of the year be his year as opposed to being there all of the time. And I know he finished fifth in the open championship, but you know, he's such a great, great player that he's going to finish fifth or he's going to finish seventh, even if he puts iffy. And if he would put good, he could find himself firmly in contention with more chances to win. But I think his putter holds him back. I think he 
has attitude issues where he goes into a funk and he lets things bother him. And, and I think Spieth is a better grinder. Uh, like Tiger was a great grinder. Jack was a great grinder. Jordan is a great grinder. Uh, Kuchar is not as great a grinder. Phil is not as great a grinder. You know, Phil's missed lots of cuts over the course of his career. So I think Jordan is just getting to the point where we're going to find out how special a player he truly is. Obviously, he's extremely special at this point and doing very rarefied things. And, you know, if he quit today, you, you could make a case for voting him into the World Golf Hall of Fame with his three majors and I don't know how many 10, 11 tour wins at this point. And, uh, you know, uh, 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 who am I trying to think of that's kept uh, three majors and 10 wins who's in uh, uh, the name escapes me for the moment, but we've got a player in the World Golf Hall of Fame, you know, with three wins and uh, with three majors and 10 wins overall. Uh, can't believe I can't think of it for the moment, but Jordan, I think, is going to become a more consistent player. I think that he will become a better putter inside of 10 feet where statistically relatively on tour he's not one of the better putters around 10 feet but outside of 10 feet his putting stats are absolutely you know off the charts and he makes a lot of putts outside of 10 feet and a lot of putts between 10 and 20 feet which is you know the proximity that these guys expect their short irons to finish from the hole 15 20 feet 25 feet and he makes a lot of those, and uh, he misses a lot more short putts than somebody, say, like Matt Kuchar does. Uh, you know, he's missed twice as many putts from three feet this year as Matt has missed this year, but I think he'll become a better putter inside of five feet, save himself more strokes. I don't think he'll lose his touch outside of ten feet, and it's obvious he doesn't just rely on his putting. I mean, his iron play is absolutely superb. He's one of the best chipper and putters I've ever seen. Uh, the Kuchar bunker shots, as I mentioned, were out of this world. Uh, but I, uh, you know, there was no way to know, you know, after that ball went way right on 13 in the final round that that could possibly be the guy who's going to end up winning the tournament. You figured Kuchar would have at least a two-shot lead after that hole, and he missed his own 10-footer for birdie on that hole, which would have helped him immeasurably and made it a two-shot swing rather than a one-shot swing. And so if there was a pivotal hole, that was it in that Jordan only lost one shot as opposed to two or more. So I'm not at all surprised that that Jordan ended up doing what he did, but there was no way of knowing that that was coming. So it it was a happy surprise. And He's starting to do things that, you know, that feel Tiger and Jack-like, even though he's not Tiger or Jack, certainly, at this point. But, you know, you certainly got to like his chances, given good health and good personal relationships. You know, I, you know, I, think, of, uh, I think of Tom Brady, somebody who, you know, has been able to get everything balanced in his life and have a very long career. I think of Roger Federer, who's now 36 years old who won the two majors that he played in so far this year, has figured out how to balance his life, never overdid it with the exercise and hurt himself very badly, even though he had minor knee surgery. I think Spieth's in the Brady category. I think Spieth's in the Federer category. I don't know if he's in the ultimate consistency of Jack and Tiger category, but he's, you know, breathing some very rarefied air right now, and I won't at all be surprised if he wins the PGA Championship in a couple of weeks. 
It's, of course, like any other that he should be able to play beautiful golf on. It's a second-shot course, so here's the best iron player going to a second-shot course. That match, matches up pretty well. He's got to be on a high. He's, he's got to be happy with his putting. And so, you know, I, well, you hate to pick favorites for golf tournaments. This guy is on a roll right now. He just won his last two starts, and he won at Pebble earlier this year on those, you know, greens that can be very bumpy in, in the early part of the calendar year, which they are, and they get better over the summer. Um, and so, you know, he's able to overcome adversity. You know, you're playing three courses when you're playing at Pebble. The holdout bunker shot for the win was amazing. This finish was amazing. What he's done over the last three or four years has been incredible. He's even been competitive in other major championships where he didn't end up winning, but he finished second. Or, you know, remember it at the old course, he finished a stroke out of the playoff when he really, after made the birdie, made the birdie on 16 at the old course from 50 feet, you know, he needed to go 4-3, and he ended up going 5-4, but he had a chance to win that tournament and to be win the third leg of the Grand Slam that year. And so he put himself in position, and he had the four putt on eight, which didn't help the proceedings very much. But, you know, on 17, he missed the putt for par, and on an 18, he hit a very bad wedge and just and had to fight for a par on the easiest final hole in all of championship golf of all four majors. So I just think uh, the, that the, the future for him is absolutely off the charts, and he has the it factor, and I think people like him. I think they're more drawn to him than they are to Rory McIlroy. Um, I don't think it's a xenophobic thing, the fact that Rory comes from another country. I just think that it's easier to like Jordan than it is to like Rory, even though Rory is likable. But he gets petulant, and he gets into funks, and he's inconsistent, and he's not good from 10 feet, and you know, and sometimes he just throws in the towel and other times just on sheer ability, even if he's not playing well, he's able to have a lot of backdoor top fives and top sevens and major championships. So I would, if I had to choose between whose career I would take going forward and remember that, you know, you got five years difference on the two or he's closer to 30 and Jordan's closer to 20. Um, you've got to like Jordan's chances of, of being able to win you know, certainly five major championships. He's only 23. And the chances of him winning, if he stays healthy, if he stays focused, if he stays interested, his desire stays there, if he isn't corrupted by the money, that he's somebody who's capable of winning 10 majors based on what we've seen so far. Well, Peter, I know we've got we've to let you go. And it's, uh, it's always, you know, too short. Whatever amount of time I get to spend with you and then listen to, you know, your insights, it's never it's never enough time. But let our listeners right, know, right. you know, what what you're up to and how they can stay up to date with uh, with what you're doing. Well, uh, right now I'm writing a book. I have a podcast that you can listen to, but just by going to peterkessler.com, I've got seven podcasts on there. I haven't done any lately because I've kind of been saving my stories for the book and not doing them on podcasts of late. So depends on whether I get a, a publisher for the book. Somebody's also talking to me about TV, but I've had that happen two or three times in the last few years and it sort of ended up in heartbreak. They didn't get their money or something fell through. And uh, so I've got, you know, some kind of a shot, shot, maybe it's one in three of finding a place to do some television programming again, which would be terrific. So 
right now I'm in uh, I'm in first or second year. The book's moving along. I think it's really good. So some publishers have really liked it. And if we get to do some TV again, I think we can put on some compelling programming. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about, you know, the things that, 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 that could come. And, uh, and that's what's going on. People can find you on social media. Let it remind them where they can go do that so they can uh, stay up to date uh, when uh, you've got some new things coming out. Well, I'm Peter Kessler at Facebook, Peter Kessler on Twitter. I'm very active on Facebook. I post very, very often, and uh, I'm active on Twitter. And my website, peterkessler.com, you can go ahead and listen to my podcasts and see my bio if anybody has an interest in seeing some of the things I've done historically. Um, so that, that's where I'm findable these days. And I hope to become more visible with a book and more visible with TV. And we'll see if those things will actually come to pass. Well, you know, I'm rooting hard for that because when I still, you know, going back to the beginning of this year, one of the five things I wanted to see come out of, you know, this, uh, this golf year, this calendar year was more of Peter Kessler and getting Peter Kessler back, whether it's on the radio or on TV, because uh, you're the best there is, Peter. Thanks, buddy. I love being on the show, and I appreciate that you include me, and I appreciate all the nice posts you put up about me and your other guests on Facebook and Twitter. It's uh, it's very flattering, and it's you know and it keeps me visible, and it's good for business, and um, and it draws attention to your show, which is absolutely fantastic. I also love the tailgate show on Thursdays. And so I think you're doing a great job, and I'm uh, always honored to be on the show. I appreciate it. Now, thank you very much, Peter, for your time. Look forward to catching up with you again real soon, Peter. In between now and then, all the best to you and your family. Same to you, buddy. Call me whenever you need me. Thank you, Peter. That is the great Peter Kessler. And again, you can find him on social media at Peter Kessler. And like he said, he's on Facebook as well. So Peter is uh, just the best there's ever been. That's all, you know, I don't know a better way to describe him than that. All right, folks, before we close up shop, I want to give a, a shout out to our new friends over at Par Bar. Energy and focus on the course is essential whether you're playing you know, out on tour in the club championship or just in a weekend four ball with your buddies. Par Bar, the golf, the golfer's nutrition bar can help you with both of those things. Eat some, you know, before you get to the first tee and then eat the rest a little bit at a time over, you know, over every three holes or so until you're finished and you're going to play better. You're going to have more energy. You're going to have more focus to stay, you know, stay in the moment and to, and to win whatever tournament you might be playing in. Par Bar was developed by a lifelong golfer and food scientist to help all golfers play their best. Go online to parbargolf.com to order yours. We also like to close out every show by reminding you about our friend and PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's hear a word from our friend uh, Jim and all the great things that they are doing, again, at the Salute Military Golf Association. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. 
Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, folks, they are doing amazing things at the Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks once again to Mark Wiebe, Jay Blasey, and Peter Kessler for joining me today. I hope you all enjoyed the show. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro on Facebook and share your feedback with me. Plus, if you've got a question for one of our future guests or you got something you want me to pass on to a previous guest, please let us know in the comments section there as well. We'll be glad to, to do that for you. Check us out online. This show, you can you can find it at nextonthetee.net. Please also check out our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazeri. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio. That show, like this one, is also available as a free podcast with our great partners over on TuneIn.com and Podbean as well. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends who join us to share their stories, their memories from their playing days, share their insights into what's going on, you know, in the NFL today. Plus, we also highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. Like I say, you can find it online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com or this show next on the T.net. Folks, thanks for choosing to listen to the show today. We know you got a thousand podcasts and shows that you have the opportunity to take a listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros, and top instructors. Media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.